Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing. I'm your host, David Thornton. On today's episode of The Rules of Investing, I'm joined by Steve Johnson, Chief Investment Officer and Co-Founder at Forager Funds. Forager started life in 2009 and now manages approximately $350 million across an Australian share fund, a listed investment trust with the ticket code FOR, and an unlisted international shares fund. Forager are on the hunt for undervalued and unloved companies, mainly in the small cap space, but they also invest in mids and large caps to add some liquidity to the portfolio when volatility spikes. Today, we discuss lessons learned from 2022, the small cap cycle and earnings downgrades, and the one Aussie company with a market monopoly in the US. If you're an Apple podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever we post new content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. Steve, thanks for joining us on The Rules of Investing. Great to have you on. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Okay, let's rip the Band-Aid off. Last year was a very difficult year for all investors, uh, including Forager. What were the main takeaways from it? Yeah, it's been a complete roller coaster. Back to 2021 was crazy in the the positive sense and then a, a very negative year in 2022. And that in itself was probably the biggest lesson. Those cycles always do come to an end. And if anything, they've got shorter and shorter over the past couple of decades in terms of both the ups and the downs. I would say for me personally, one big thing out of last year was just because you've done the right thing doesn't mean you've done enough of the right thing. We've said a lot to our investors. We took a lot of small steps in the right direction, cognizant of the fact that things were getting very, very, very expensive out there and particularly in the space that we were in, small and mid-cap stocks. And we did a lot of selling. We did a bit of buying of things like Tesco. We bought a small basket of commodity stocks, but in total, the magnitude of that was nowhere near enough to protect us from the magnitude of the bubble that was going on out there. So I find you often, you know, you do a trade, you sell a bit of an investment that you've got and you feel like, okay, I'm being sensible here and I'm I'm doing the right thing. And then you look back and say, well, the right thing was actually to completely exit that investment. So it just wasn't anywhere near defensive enough from us at a point where we were very, very aware of how expensive the market was. How do you know when it's the right time to sell out, given that you want to you know, pursue a disciplined mandate that invests for the long term? I think you want to sell a stock when it's no longer offering you your minimum rate of return into perpetuity in the future. And thinking that you're going to try and pick the top is where it gets really dangerous in terms of hanging on to something that that is no longer meeting that criteria. So whatever style of investor you are, what whatever your objective is, it's when that stock is no longer playing that role. It's time to move on it on from it. And for us, that that is typically a a, a grade. You know, we'll have five, six, seven percent of our portfolio in a stock when we think it's really, really cheap and when it's the right sort of business. And in that same stock, we might have a two percent weighting still when it's it's going well, but it's nowhere near as cheap as it was. Uh, we will typically keep adjusting our weighting until we hit a zero, rather than waking up one day and saying today is the day I sell it and you sell the lot. Because if, if you do that, what you're effectively saying is I've got the largest portfolio waiting in this stock at the point when it is the least cheap. And that doesn't make intuitive sense to me. Yeah. So that's a great segue to my next question. How do you reconcile preserving capital um, when volatil- volatility is high with chasing opportunities? Um, are they mutually exclusive or do they kind of work in cahoots? 
from my perspective, the best way to preserve capital is to pay prices that are cheap enough. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about this later in the podcast in terms of interest rates in the environment, but prices are all about expectations. And if you can pay a price that's low enough, that the expectations are low enough, that can actually do a really good job of uh, protecting your capital to start with. And at the other end of the spectrum, sometimes the best businesses in the world uh, get expensive and you can lose a lot of capital by investing in those businesses if you pay the wrong price. And, and that lesson has been learned a lot over the past couple of years by a lot of investors as well. So price is really, really important. Some diversification is really important. The world is just an uncertain place and strange things happen and weird things happen. And you really do not want to have all of your eggs in one basket, nor do you want to have 10 companies in your portfolio that might be different businesses, but are exposed to the same external factor such that you've actually got 50% of your portfolio invested in one thing. So I think sensible diversification and then you know, the quality of the business is important and managing your portfolio weightings around that is an important way of protecting capital as well. Having 1% on our sort of metrics, 1% of our portfolio in something that might be quite a variable, risky sort of uh, business the weighting itself can be a way of protecting our portfolio capital versus having six or seven percent of our portfolio in something that we think is a much safer business. So we also just try and protect capital through weightings. Can you give us an example of, of a weighting that's changed? Well, I think in our Australian portfolio at the moment, uh, we've got a couple of little uh, fintech stocks, which I think are some chance of being worth four or five times where they're trading today. Uh, Wiser and Plenty are those two companies. They're totally illiquid and they are very, very risky. We're about to go through a recession and uh, it's going to be interesting to see how they perform. Those businesses perform well through this environment, uh, improve their balance sheets are stable. They can be much larger weightings or, for example, in a profitable, resilient uh, tech stock like uh, RPM Global, which is in our Australian fund as well, we currently have 7% of our portfolio in that. So they're two quite interesting situations. One of them, we've got 1%, the other, we've got 7 because one is definitely not going bust and the other one is some chance of that happening. When we go through periods like this, there's obviously the main investment piece, but there's also the investor relations piece. Um, how do you manage the latter during a period like that? I try not to change. Uh, we've built our whole business on being as transparent as we possibly can with our, our customer base. That's easy when things are going well. It's really hard when things are, are not going well to be as transparent. But for us, and our style of investing, it has been a fundamental principle of the business from day one that if we are going to do this well, we know we're going to go through periods of really bad performance. We need people that stick by us. So we spend a lot of time communicating with people, explaining that we're going to go through those types of environments and also explaining the mistakes that we make and the things that we get wrong. And the odd person writes back and says, you're an idiot and <laughs> exiting my investment. <laughs> but most of our clients have come along because they respect that. And I think when they read a lot of other stuff out there in the market, they view it very, very skeptically. And when they read ours, they think, well, they do get things wrong, but I know exactly what they're doing and I've invested with them for a reason that I that I understand. So we, we've tried to turn it up, um, certainly through that COVID March, April 2020 meltdown, we were doing really regular videos as well. And just simple little things like just jump on a webinar and if people want to tune in for the day, they can. 
this past year, I think it's been a bit more relentless in a way. It hasn't been as timely. And, and I've found a lot of investors have checked out to some extent. They don't really want as much information as they, they wanted back in 2020 because it, it feels like it's got more longevity to it and they don't necessarily want to be reading about it every week. But we've tried to just maintain that transparency and send people reports. And you know, we wrote one performance report in 2021 where we did not have one stock in our international fund that went down, which was a message in itself. And then we had to write one this year where there was hardly a stock that went up on the other side of the, the spectrum. And you spend the whole report writing about things that have gone down on a spectrum from we actually don't think we've got this wrong to, yes, we made a mistake here. Let's put 2022 to bed. Um, some good news last week with a softer US uh, CPI read than people were expecting. What's your base case for inflation um, and how is the market pricing that in, especially in relation to the Aussie consumer? Yeah, I actually don't think it's that much of a surprise. I think the market has been on to this if you look at bond rates for at least three months and certainly since that November inflation print. And November was a really strong month for equity markets. And then the Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, came out and said, we don't care what the inflation numbers are telling us. We're going to keep putting interest rates up. And I think in the minutes to that meeting, there was actually a pretty clear explanation of why they're doing that. I, I think they see the same thing everyone else sees in terms of uh, risks, inflation risks certainly starting to slow down, but they do not want asset prices going crazy. <laughs> so they're trying to send this message that even if we're not going to put rates up as high as we were previously going to do, we don't want to tell everyone that because it's only going to in itself cause the problem that we're trying to fix just because every, to there's too much- expansion. Yeah, or just too much optimism. Part of the reason I think that the inflation concerns are starting to dim is oil prices are down car prices are down, commodity prices are down, all these economically sensitive assets, copper prices, you know, Dr. Copper is, is a, a good proxy for the economy. All of those things are down. That's helping on the inflation front because people think there's a recession coming and businesses are being conservative. If that that mentality changes, it in and itself could change the inflation outlook. But there's been really, really clear evidence that a lot of prices for a lot of things are going down, not up. And uh, it's pretty clear that when we're sitting in October of 2023 and you're comparing October 23 prices with October 22 prices when car prices, used car prices were 30% higher than they're going to be in October next year, I think there's every chance that headline CPI number is negative just on the mathematics of what we're seeing. That doesn't mean the underlying core problem has gone away. Labor markets are tight. Wage inflation is still problematic, but there is... There is clear evidence here for a pause, I think, from central banks. The magnitude of the, the tightening has been very, very extreme. I think our RBA has been aware of that fairly early. They know that we have a lot of variable rate mortgages in this country, so we are much more sensitive to rate rises. Uh, I, I think, yeah, 50 to 100 basis points or up to a percent more of interest rate rises both in the US and here, and that will probably be it for the next 12 months until everyone sees how that is digested. The Goldilocks scenario, I think, for the economy and for me is that interest rates don't need to go much higher, but they can be sustained at this sort of level for an extended period of time. And the reason I say that is because I think it plays a really, really important role in the economy that capital gets allocated efficiently and that there is a real cost of money, both for governments and for investors, 
to say, I'm going to be sensible about where I allocate this money because I require a rate of return that is over and above what I can get on government bonds. And I think if that government bond rate is three and a half, four percent and people are looking around at assets going, I want sevens, eights and tens, then you get sensible allocation of capital. And I think that is really good for the productivity of the economy that the right businesses get money and get invested in. And there's a discipline around efficiency and productivity that translates to investor wealth, but also translates to productivity across the whole economy. So I, I think I think while ever rates don't go down, I'm hoping we're in a far more sensible environment. And equity markets are not cheap. You know, we, we are trading at multiples, I think, that reflect current levels of long-term interest rates, not any sort of discount to that. So to the extent that you get some crazy 20 or 30% rally from here, it's only going to move things from what I would call fair to expensive very, very quickly. And, and that's going to make my life a whole lot more difficult. <laughs> So, Steve, we had the, you could call it the rates sell-off, um, but of course there's a lag until that feeds through into earnings. Um, how will the earnings, the assumed earnings downgrades um, feed into the small cap cycle? Uh, is it priced in or are we going to see another sell-off before, before things improve? Well, uh, this whole COVID era, the last three years, I don't think the old rule books have been useful at all, at all. You know, people dusted off the financial crisis and sold every single stock that had leverage and they were all fine. And and the businesses that have been winners and losers, it's all easy to sit here now and say that. But I remember sitting there in March of 2020 saying, well, surely discretionary retail is going to be hugely problematic, right? Everyone's losing their jobs and they don't have any money, discretionary retail, and that was probably the best performing sector through COVID. So I don't think there are any easy rule books to dust off, and I really do think we are going into a period here where individual company results are going to drive significant amounts of shareholder returns rather than the momentum nature that we've seen of markets over the past few years. And I'm really confident that there are some small cap businesses out there that can actually do quite well in an economic environment that might even be in aggregate recession. But within that recession, there are going to be pockets of things that are doing quite well relative to their base level of activity during lockdowns. You know, tourism is a big one for me. It's a big part of our portfolio. I think inbound tourism into Australia is a really easy to see sector that is going to be doing just fine in terms of aggregate demand for those company services. And like we've seen in other sectors, they're going to be trying to meet that demand with less capacity than they had before and much leaner cost structures. So you can see those businesses, we own Tourism Holdings, which is a Kiwi company that bought Apollo Tourism and Leisure. It's now listed on the ASX. Uh, we own Experience Co., I think those two businesses can have really good years, whether we have a recession in aggregate or not. And then at the other end of the spectrum, I think surely, surely every TV that needs to be bought in Australia has been bought over the past couple of years. So I'm a huge fan of JB Hi-Fi as a business, but I just think those businesses that are earning really high margins relative to their historical averages, uh, they brought forward a whole heap of demand because of COVID. I think whether we have a recession or not, those businesses are going to do it tough. Housing is quite clearly going to do it tough. So 
it's sector by sector and it's business by business. And, and I think you can find some businesses that you can be pretty confident about doing well, even if the next couple of years are economically difficult. Most market commentators the past six months a year have just been talking about quality, quality, quality. Um, is there any value to be found um, in these quality businesses uh, anymore? Can you find a, a quality business that is also, you know, had been beaten down by the market? Uh, yes, you can. <laughs> in general, I think that whole space, that there is just a huge desire for some form of safety or lack of or, or certainty around profitability of the company. So people just do not want to be disappointed. And I think in general, those companies are very expensive as a result of a huge amount of crowding into that part of the market. And it hasn't, you know, you look at ResMed and Cochlear on the ASX, they've come back a bit, but multiple-wise, they're not trading at different multiples to what they were when the 10-year government bond rate was zero and now it's 3.7%. And I don't know, I, I look at those businesses and I think you might get six or seven long-term owning them and you can get four in a government bond, it doesn't really stack up for me. But I would say, I mean, you can buy Microsoft at the moment down what, 35% from its highs, trading at a low 20s multiple of its earnings, caught up in a sector that's that's very unpopular at the moment, but where the business is about as reliable and predictable as they come. So I think there are exceptions in in certain pockets out there of good quality businesses. And, and I even, always- Even that far up the market cap spectrum? Yep. Yep. Well, if anything, it's a bit like what I was talking about before about- uh, not overcomplicating things. I, I think, if anything, if if you do want that certainty and and lack of uncertainty about a coming recession as a part of your portfolio, and I don't I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I wouldn't, like I said, I think it's expensive. I wouldn't have my whole portfolio in it, but I think there is a place. You might as well go big and genuinely safe and huge cash generative rather than thinking you're going to be a stock picker at that end of the market because I think the general environment is one of things being very expensive in that particular space. Okay. So you're going for, for lack of a better term, beaten down quality companies. Um, what's an example of a company that you just wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole at the moment? Oh, that's a good question. I, I don't even have an answer to that question because I think even a JB Hi-Fi, it's not cheap enough for us. And I'll talk about some sort of waiting for right prices stocks later, but I don't think the market is completely missing any of this, right? Like JB Hi-Fi is trading at 10 times earnings. It's traded at 16 times earnings for most of its life and grown very nicely. So investors are perceiving that this business faces some challenges. And there are not a huge amount of exceptions uh, to that. I, I think that expensive part of the market is way too expensive mm -hmm. for me. It could fall 30% and I still wouldn't be um, piling into it. But you know, I, I, it's not uninvestable. It's not I'd run a mile from it. It's just too expensive for me. And you know, we don't own commodity stocks, but I think those businesses are perfectly sensibly priced. And I think that the argument that there's not enough capital going into that sector for the next decade is a very, very valid one. So there's really not many parts of the market at the moment that I'd say, this is just crazy. We, we've lost the the stupidity. I was on the live wire videos at the start of last year. I mean, you don't get any prizes for predicting it, but just talking about the madness amongst NFTs and meme stocks and things, that was a really obvious 
a really obvious bubble. So you're not um, buying GameStop? No. <laughs> I still don't. So let me come back to that. I don't th- feel like that is completely washed out yet. We're you seeing these little remains? rallies of yeah. things and and I look at the valuations of some of these businesses. Hopefully I won't get sued for this or anything. But there's a company on the ASX called Audio Pixels. It's been around for more than a decade listed on the ASX and they have never, ever generated a cent of revenue. <laughs> and they, they have these apparently miniature speakers that are tiny and can make, create enormous amounts of noise. And they've been going to do a demo for about five years, and this demo has not happened. And it, this company, I looked it up this morning because the share price is down a long way. It's still got a market capitalization of $250 million. You know, Tesla's still got a market capitalization of hundreds of billions of dollars. It is still worth almost the rest of the global car industry in aggregate, despite the fact that it's fallen 70% or whatever it is from the peak. So I still I still don't look at that space. And I would have thought by now I would be finding more things just trading at discounts to net cash like we found out of the dot-com bubble. There, there's more to go there in terms of those things trading at prices that, that reflect genuine this is over. You know, that there's got to come a point here where people just swear off it forever. Yet that Bed Bath & Beyond was up five times last week or four times. It went from $1.20 to $4.60 a share in the space of a week. It's another, it was one of the four big meme stocks at the, alongside GameStop and the rest at the the peak of it. What's on the shopping list, Steve? What is a company that you'd love to buy on, on a bit of pullback if it yeah, falls? Well, we've really been preparing for this. We had the research team writing up a lot of finished full research notes on companies that we'd like to own at the right price because I'm hopeful that in certain sectors in particular, there's a bit more pain to come here. On the ASX, James Hardy's probably the biggest one of those. Uh, I, until Gaston had done the full piece of research for me, I wasn't aware how dominant that business is in its US cladding market, their 80% market share. There's really obvious reasons why you have competitive advantage in that space. They have a lot of manufacturing facilities. Uh, The more of them you have, the less transport cost you have to get it to market. They've got scale over everyone else. The product itself is more durable than anything else that's out there on the market. So uh, that's a really high quality business that is, I think, capable of people getting very pessimistic about if this US housing market Everyone's predicting a downturn. They're also predicting that it recovers pretty quickly. A couple of US home builders hit 52-week highs in terms of share prices last week, which I find completely and utterly bizarre. Everyone is already looking to the other end of the tunnel. Uh, But JB Hi-Fi, Reliance Worldwide, they're two businesses that I think are cyclical and at the right point in the cycle, people can get pretty pessimistic about. So hoping for those. And then I read uh, Chip Wars over the Christmas break, which was the FT business book of the year uh, about the, the computer chip industry. And my colleague, Harvey Magotti, has been really banging the table about the quality of some of the best businesses in that sector for a long time. Again, the share prices have bounced a bit over the past couple of months, but that's a sector we'd really like to have a a long-term investment in because it's something that is it's just one of those industries that is fairly obviously going to grow for a very long period of time and has consolidated enormously over the past decade to the point where there's typically one or two key players in each part of that supply chain that are making very healthy very healthy profits the Taiwanese company TSMC is the 
the obvious one, uh, enormous returns on capital, and they are making you know, 80% of the world's most advanced chips out there. Of course, there's a lot of geopolitical tensions now around Taiwan. Um, in terms of the chips, is any of that manufacturing capacity being onshored in the States? It is, yes. I think they're doing what they need to do to keep the politicians happy, <laughs> but it's hard. I mean, one of the reasons this business is so, uh, I guess, defensive is the right word, but all, everything that I've read says it would take at least at least five years to build one of these new fabs in the US for making the brand new high-end chips. They are so – there are 180 million transistors on one chip now. And that's from, you know, the first one had four on it and now they've got 180 million. They're operating at a scale that's down to the size of the atom and then now they're stacking them on top of each other rather than just next to each other. The technology is truly mind-bending and it's not easy just to go and replicate that, even for the company that's already got the technology. I, I do think when I finish the book, the US government has played a huge role in the development of all of this technology right from the time the industry started. They are clearly not strategically happy with the world's factory for this stuff sitting on the, the doorstep of China. So I think TSMC is going to have to build more production elsewhere. And also, I think the government will do everything they can to try and get Intel to turn its fortunes around and become a better quality business. We we're talking about quality earlier. I meant to mention Intel as part of that as well. I think as an investor, everyone talks about good quality and bad quality. I listened to a podcast uh, over the weekend with Michael Mabusen, and he was saying statistically, you don't make any money buying those quartiles of business. Like you buy the best 25% of the businesses and the worst 25% of the businesses or the two quartiles in between. You make exactly the same amount of return over time because the market prices these things for the fact that they're good quality or bad quality, where all of the money is made is anticipating and lost, which companies are going to move from being a good quality business to a not so good quality business or from a not so good quality business to a good quality business. And yeah, you, you compare Intel and Microsoft over the past 10 years, Microsoft was perceived as a declining mediocre business that was trading at 10 times earnings. You've made eight times your money because it's now perceived as a really high quality business. Intel was perceived as a really high quality chip manufacturer. They, they do every chip, every computer that's got a Microsoft operating system on, it's got an Intel chip in it, they are hand in glove. That was a super high quality business that missed the whole mobile revolution. Apple asked them to develop the chip for the first iPhone and they said, that's going to hurt our profit margins and we don't want to spend 300 million bucks developing a piece of technology when we don't know whether the phone's going to sell or not. And they completely missed the mobile wave and that business has done nothing over eight years of bull markets while Microsoft share price has gone up eight times. So. The trick as an investor is not to find a high quality business or a bad quality business, but to try and identify the the movers amongst those cohorts. Now, I mentioned it, but I know you own Flutter. It's one of your top holdings, if not your top holding in the global fund. I've been, spoken to a lot of fundies who are very bullish on the stock. Um, what's the thesis at the moment for a stock like that in the current economic climate? Well, I'm not as bullish as I was 30% lower price-wise. Uh, yeah, that, that, is, that is important in any investing situation. And I think you've got a lot of Australian investors that are bullish about it because 
Australia was one of the first markets in the world to deregulate. This is a sports betting company. They own Sportsbet here in Australia. They own Paddy Power and Betfair in the UK. And the most important asset is this FanDuel, which is a US sports betting company that was a fantasy. So it was a fantasy sports business that is now sports betting. So they had tens of millions of customers from their fantasy days that they're now converting into sports betting customers. And the bull case here is a lot of US investors have been looking at what's happening there saying nobody's making any money, they're all spending a fortune acquiring customers and the business is just not going to be economical. And all of the Australian investors are looking at it going, well, that's what it looked like here 15 years ago. It was a massive land grab. Everyone lost money for five or 10 years. And now you look at sports bet and it's making 30% profit margins and it's got 50% market share. So if you can, we know if you can end up being the largest in the market, it can be a very, very profitable business. And that that marketing spend is actually an investment in a customer that's going to generate you revenue into the future. I think that is becoming more reflected in the, the price. It is still our largest investment. We still think there is a lot of upside in it. I think it was a really sort of easy, we're going to make a lot of money here at 8,000 pence and now it's trading 12 and a half. It, it's up 50% from those lows and I don't think it's as straightforward. You now need that US market to work for you to do quite well from here. But, you know, that's the pitch and I always think sometimes there are advantages to being an outsider and then sometimes there are not and I think you need to be very careful as an outsider just translating your home experience to another market. So we spend an inordinate amount of time just trying to double check that that it is actually going to play out that way. The, the evidence is really becoming compelling on a state-by-state -state basis in the US. The early states are already showing signs of substantial profitability. Would you add to your position if the price fell a bit? Uh, well, I mean, we've taken a bit off the table just in terms of managing that weighting at these levels. So yes, and I've been pushing our portfolio managers a lot to be more aggressive around higher weightings at lower prices and lower weightings at higher prices. And I know that sounds sort of obvious, but it, it's often not because you buy the stock and the decision to sell it is usually, well, it needs to be expensive before I'm going to sell it. And Gareth is still a huge fan of this business and we're still very confident that it's going to do well. But we had 4% of the portfolio in it when it was 30% lower than it is today. Why do you want a bigger weighting when it's not as cheap as it was? So I think giving ourselves the capacity to, if this does come back and it falls again, we want to keep doing that. We want to keep having that higher weighting at lower prices. And I'm hoping, you never know, but it's certainly been the case for the past 12 months, but we've had a whole bunch of stocks that have gone up, down, up, down, up, down. And if you're a big weighting at the lower level and you're a small weighting at the higher level, then that can be a very profitable, um, they're just very profitable changes to your investment over time as well. You get multiple opportunities to invest in the same business at a cheap price. As volatility has uh, increased and remained elevated for quite a while now. Um, have you found yourself moving up the market cap spectrum, possibly chasing a bit more liquidity for the portfolio? Uh, not in our international fund. We, the, in the US, we really just do not, even in smaller companies, we just don't have the same problems with liquidity that we have here in Australia. And I think most of the opportunities are at 
the relatively smaller end of the market, and I'm talking sub two billion market cap there globally. So my job as CIO, I actually set some limits around that thing. You know, we need a minimum of X percent of our portfolio invested in market cap of less than this. And I use that as a way to steer the team around the park in terms of when do I want them being more aggressive, when are the opportunities really good versus I want you being more conservative. And when we look back to 2022 again, I did not do I had my views and I didn't do a good enough job of translating that into portfolio constraints that they need to operate the portfolio in because as a CEO, you don't want to be running around saying, buy this stock or don't buy that stock. That's that's the portfolio manager's job is to get that decision right. It's my job to recognize that we're in an environment where the opportunities are in a particular part of the market. At the moment, I think that is squarely small cap. So I am pushing people more into the small cap into the market. In our Aussie fund, we have a lot more liquidity problems and we're pretty close to where we, our maximum tolerance for illiquidity in the portfolio. We've got a few takeovers that are going through and as that cash comes back in, we can recycle that into some more illiquid opportunities. But I do think here in the Aussie market, it's where the, it's where the future returns are as well is at the smaller end of the market. Steve, we always finish the podcast with three favorite questions. We always like to ask our guests. Question one, what's the single biggest thing investors are getting wrong about markets currently? We already touched on this and it might be too late for this piece of advice, but that they they have time here and they're still going to be able to invest at the bottom. That's that's the most common thing I'm hearing from people that I just can't change people's minds on and I think it is wrong. That, that's no guarantee that we don't have another downturn here and that there are more opportunities, but just the idea that you somehow – are going to know when that time comes along. It's just not right. And as soon as I ask people, and you should ask yourself this question if if you're thinking that way, what is it that's going to make you think that that is not the case anymore? Most people can't actually answer that question. And I'll tell you what it is. The market is going to be up 30%. The economy is going to be looking okay. And people are going to go, well, okay, that was the bottom and I don't know it until six months after. So I think that's a real mistake from people and this is not a pile in, you know, be really aggressive, but I think people should have their portfolio objectives. They should have their weightings and they should stick to it. And I don't think there is any reason to not be sticking to that at the moment. So if you're thinking 40% equities and 40% bonds and 20% cash, and because of what's happened on equity markets, your equities are down to 30 I think you should absolutely be thinking, well, I need my, I've got my portfolio structure here. I've got the way I want to run the portfolio and I don't think there's any reason to not be doing that now. Question two, could you share a story of a big win or loss you've had in your investing uh, career? What happened and what lesson did you learn from it? Got a few on both sides of the ledger. Uh, I guess characterized ourselves from big wins and big losses. The biggest win for far, by far for me was the old Rams home loans. It became RHG. Uh, it was a financial crisis IPO. And uh, basically three weeks after it IPO'd, the, the market completely closed for them to fund any new home loans. So it became, it became a loan book in runoff and the share price went from I think it was a dollar fifty IPO. I first invested in it at seventy cents. It hit four point six cents on the thirtieth of June two thousand and eight. That was four point six cents, and ended up paying out about a dollar fifty in fully franked dividends. 
And the reason that that was big for me personally in terms of my own investments, it was also probably the main reason Forager started because I had a lot of uh, clients at Intelligent Investor back in the day that followed me on that piece of research, downloaded the model that I built for it and got paid massive fully frank dividends relative to their purchase price over the, the, the subsequent five years. So that was a huge win. And then I, I've picked these two stocks on the other side of the ledger because they're related. Uh, I've had two big complete wipeouts, businesses that went bankrupt in my life. One was Freedom Insurance and the other was Timbercorp. And that experience with um, with Rams Home Loans and RHG, it showed me how pessimistic the market can get. It showed me how I'd come from an investment banking background. I had modeled out that loan book and said, this is going to generate. We actually, I'd, I'd done this DCF model and it said, there's going to be $1.20 of fully frank dividends that's going to come out of this thing over the next 10 years. And we sat there and we said, we can't send out a dollar twenty. The share price is trading at 10 cents. So we changed all the assumptions to get the, the valuation down to 80 cents and sent it out. I think I got a misplaced confidence in models out of that. And both Freedom and Timbercorp were, you know, Excel models, businesses that we knew weren't great products, but where they had this established customer base, they were in runoff to a certain extent. And we had calculated that we were going to get more money from that runoff than the shares were trading at at that point in time and neither of them worked out anything like that for for different reasons in both situations but that you know in three examples showed me the power of getting it right and then also the danger of having too much faith in in an excel spreadsheet when real life happens in the real world so you're saying you can't put too much faith in models so what do you need to complement models with to be successful in investing well, it is only ever a – it should only ever be a summary of something that you can write down on the back of an envelope. If you can't if you can't do it on the back of an envelope, then it's too complicated and there are too many things that can go wrong with it. And companies are run by human beings. So you might have a spreadsheet and that spreadsheet might be right in terms of the amount of cash that the business is going to generate, but – you need to put a lot of time and effort into what the people that are running that business, the other owners of that business, and the people that are on the board are going to do uh, about that cash flow. So it, I think there's just a huge, huge qualitative element that needs to sit alongside what for me now are mostly pretty simple DCF models, or in a lot of cases, I don't. The analysts might build their own, but unless they can explain it to me in a much simpler format, it should. Any any DCF should translate to some really simple heuristics, like a PE ratio, right? If the business is not going to grow much and it's not going to change, then a PE is perfectly fine. If it's currently unprofitable but you think it's going to be profitable, then we need to work out a bunch of things in between now and then that are important. But so you know, standalone, so the, they're, they're fairly useless. Yeah, so the, narr- the models need to be couched within a narrative that makes sense. That's right. They're trying to summarize a world that you have already understood what's different about your view about the future than what everyone else is pricing at the moment. Steve, question three, uh, and i got to preface this by saying we don't recommend anyone, anyone concentrate to this extent, but if markets were to close tomorrow for five years and you could only own shares in one company, uh, which company would that be and why? Yeah, I said uh, Alphabet in answer to this question a year ago, and I'd still be completely comfortable with that, the company that owns Google. But I think given the price moves over the past six months, I'd probably substitute that for Microsoft. Uh, It's a very, very sensibly priced business that I see very few 
competitive threats to over the next 10 or 15 years. Uh, they've shifted that business from this that you put into a computer to all of us paying them monthly subscription fees. I use Google Docs. I use Google Sheets. I do most of my stuff in Google, but I still just can't live without it. And I don't see the world moving dramatically away from that. And now you've got this cloud business as well that's a storage fee, basically. So, uh, yeah. I've still got my alphabet from a year ago that I need to hold for five, but <laughs> this year's one's Microsoft. Steve, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on The Rules of Investing. Thanks for having me anytime. That's it for today's episode. Hope you enjoyed it. For more daily content like this, be sure to sign up to livewiremarkets.com. I'll see you next time.